0: It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin Jr.
1: with the voice of wrestling,
0: the Hall of Famer himself, good old Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man?
1: I'm great, Connie. Great, Connie. I'm doing good. I I woke up with a song in my mind. Conrad rides on forever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, uh, and I'm not even and I'm not even drinking. I'm very sober, very coherent today, which. May be good, or it may not be. We'll find out, uh, on this, on this show coming up.
0: Well, we appreciate everybody tuning in to, uh, revolution pay-per-view this past weekend in Chicago. Of course, last night you guys hit the ground running with another dynamite and, uh, somewhere in there, you managed to sneak in an Eagles concert. Jim, when are you ever going to slow down?
1: Uh, when I take my final dirt nap, you know, I ain't got no time to slow down. I was Jesse Ventura said in that movie. I ain't got no time to bleed. Yeah. I ain't got time to bleed. I ain't got time to slow down. Sometimes Conrad, in all seriousness, when you get, uh, in this realm of life, you're almost afraid to slow down. And I can admit to that. I admit to a lot of things in the show, but I get a little, get a little anxious when I'm not working or not busy. It's like, well, I'm wasting time. There's something I could be doing right now. So, uh, you know, uh, Eagles was a, lifetime event, man. I enjoyed Jan and I loved them and I and they were in Dallas and I had a great time and just was awesome. And then, you know, them coming on that coming on the heels of the Saturday night's pay-per-view, uh, I thought it killed, you know, there's always things you can do better, especially me. But I thought the show was a, a ball buster and really proud of everybody in AEW and Tony Khan's team, which I'm proud to be a member of. So things are good, man. I mean, Here's the thing about life in general for me. If you have a job that you really, really love, it doesn't seem like work. Right. You know, you do, you some days I know you do multiple podcasts, uh, and and a ridiculous amount of work, but you love doing it. You are the pod father. You're creating this (laughs) damn thing. So it's a, it's a pleasure to do that kind of work. Sure. You're just adding to your creation. And so I don't know what my creation is going to be. I've been doing a lot of work on the, on our book, uh, under the black hat, the audio book, reading the audio book in Vince's voice, Austin's voice, my voice, uh, all these other cats that appear in this book. And there's a lot of people, uh, it's like a Broadway one man, Broadway show. You're trying to get these voices down. You're trying to interpret the copy that you wrote or help write. Uh, and that's, that's a uh, daunting. And then you get to the parts about Jan and how big of a role she played in my life and in the, in, in everything. It's just, it's just, uh, it's really challenging because I can visualize every single thing that we wrote about. We, I, it's still there in my memory. And some of those memories are memories that you kind of like just let go. But, uh, it is a truthful book and, the the audio part of it's going to be a, a badass piece of business when it's all said and done uh, so anyway I'm left to my uh, gonads and I'm left with my manscape balls and that but I'm happy to I'm, I'm happy that we got it done it's going to be a great uh, read i promise you or a great listen so I, a lot of good so all those things are good to me I, I'm having fun doing it so it doesn't seem like work so uh, as long as my body holds out and so far not on what it is i uh, keep it on, man. Don't worry about the meals, Conrad. Just load, Just the, load wagon. the wagon.
0: There you go. <laughs> you, you don't want to miss Jim's new book. If you haven't already, keep an eye out. JRsbbq.com. Not only can you get all your all your sauces and everything else, but you can also get an autographed copy of this book. Uh, myself and Kitty McIntosh have had the pleasure of having advanced copies. I think Mike Johnson has as well. Uh, everybody reads it in one sitting. Everybody says it's one of the best wrestling books ever. Uh, McIntosh compared it to uh, Foley's first book and Bret Hart's book. That's rare air there. You don't want to miss this book. I absolutely love it. You will too. JR'sbbq.com. And, uh, today we've got another little book, another little story for you about what I think is, uh, one of maybe the, the great big mysteries of WWE in the more recent era. Uh, it's all about Ken Anderson, the former Mr. Kennedy, and, uh, I guess we should give a peek behind the curtain. Jim, when I first sort of pitched this idea to you, you weren't sure that there was even enough meat on the bone to do a full episode here.
1: Yeah, I was concerned a little bit because, you know, uh, even though we had prepared for a very auspicious run, uh, for Ken Anderson, uh, I just wasn't sure that there was enough content to keep, uh, our audience engaged. And then upon doing some research and reading about it and then my memory started kicking back in. I said, "Oh, this will be easy," because he was a very unique character. Probably had as much high hope we had as much high hope for him as we had had for anybody in a long time. So, telling his story today, and what could have been, what might have been, et cetera, is uh, I think going to be fun.
0: I think that's one of the favorite things that we get to do here on the show is to sort of think about the what ifs. But let's talk about what we know for sure. Ken Anderson's birthday is tomorrow. He was born on uh, March 6th, 1976 in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. He grew up in a town called two rivers, Wisconsin, which is about 30 miles south of green Bay. He's a casual wrestling fan growing up. His favorites is, uh, probably the junkyard dog. And sometimes he even wanted to wear chains when he went to school, just like J Y D did when he was little. And, uh, he didn't become a big wrestling fan until 96, 97. And that's when things started to get really hot. He's over at a friend's house one night who was a big wrestling fan and tells him they're going to watch and Ken didn't necessarily want to. Eventually he reluctantly watched and, uh, he saw Steve Austin and once he saw Steve Austin, uh, drive the truck out to the ring and heard the big glass break and all that, he caught the wrestling bug in a big way, started watching every single week and then eventually it comes up that, Hey, there's a wrestling school that you can get trained at to be a wrestler. And Ken said he couldn't think of anything else. The rest of the time he was at the party. And as soon as he got home, he got online and started searching for schools in Chicago because he figured that would be the closest one. And eventually he got a call from a guy in green Bay. Uh, and they talked for about an hour and, uh, he started to chase his dream of being in the wrestling business. He had to pay a $200 fee for the tryout. And a few days later, he drops to green Bay to go to the school and, He's, uh, doing a three hour tryout where he's taking back bumps and flips and running the ropes. And this is probably familiar for a lot of people when they first get their start in wrestling, what should folks expect when they go to a a wrestling tryout these days? Do you think Jim?
1: I think you should always ask the people that are training you others that they have trained and where they are now. In other words, get some referrals. Uh, and so you can talk to these talents. Who did you train? Who, did, who made it to AEW? who made it to WWE, whatever ring of honor, wherever it may be, uh, find out their track record, find out what they have produced. And then the, the main thing to going into any wrestling school, in my view, is to be in, have great cardiovascular vascular uh, conditioning. It's a, it, that's the key because when you start when you, as the wrestler say, when you blow up, in other words, you, you, you get, uh. You no more wind. You're just you can't go anymore, or you're fatigued. Uh, that's when you start getting hurt. You hurt somebody else because you're cl- you're clumsy, or you're or you're not being able to pay attention because of your lack of oxygen, uh, or you hurt yourself. So conditioning, cardiovascular conditioning, is a it much more important than having your 20-inch biceps, or having a fake tan, or about a, or 188 tattoos, and your hair wet. But what you got to work on Conrad, you know, to get your goddamn push, you'd better be a leg slapper.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I love you. So it catches on, uh, he starts to get the bug. Uh, Mike Mercury tells him they want him to continue. They charge him $1,200 for the training. And that's how he gets his start. Once he starts wrestling, he's uh, working for his trainer, Mike Mercury on a few indie shows. And then by word of mouth starts to get booked on a few more indie shows. And after he has a little bit of experience, he starts to record uh, some of his matches and he starts sending tapes to WCW, the WWF. And of course ECW and Kevin Kelly from you guys, the WWF winds up giving him a call and telling him he liked his work. Thought he had a good look and wants to bring him in. So Kevin books, Ken on a Chicago Milwaukee loop when they're taping raw Ken makes the shot, but it never gets used. He winds up just sitting around all day, but he actually learns a lot. He's trying to soak up everything he can here because he's brushing up against the big time. He gets another call when raw is in Cleveland. So he makes that trip and this time he gets to wrestle essay Rios. And even Ken admits that the match was terrible. Um, Ken has also gone on record as saying that he was a fan of yours and he's called you the greatest announcer that he'd ever heard. He says you were untouchable and, uh, that he couldn't really talk to you. Other saying hi. And that was about it. Were these tryout matches on your radar? I know you were still in talent relations in this era. But did the agents really watch that and report back to you? Or was that something you monitored? We, 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 as fans saw a clip of you and Jim Cornette watching a match on the beyond the mat, uh, DVD that was released. And, uh, you got to see, you know, what that match looks like. And I don't know how much of that was for that DVD and that theatrical release and how much of that was real life. Did you watch the tryout matches?
1: I tried to, uh, depending on what time they were in the, uh, in the evening. Because we had a little project called raw to do live, live. And, uh, but I first heard of Ken, I think, uh, our guys, Kevin Kelly did a great job in talent relations, one of the very valuable team members. Kevin's got good product knowledge and, and uh, and very sound instincts. And of course doing a great job for uh, new Japan pro wrestling now. Uh, but he's got a long commute to work. <laughs> That's the think about that deal. A good, good guy. And uh, I, I my, our team showed me tapes all the time. If they showed me a tape of someone that I just thought was abysmal and that Vince would do do on, uh, we didn't bring them in. We didn't, we didn't go to the expense of bringing someone in. However, uh, we, as a group thought that Kent had, uh, had, had something. There was something there. And sometimes you can't describe When there's something there, you just feel it. There's that sixth sense, so to speak, that, that we get sometimes when we are evaluating talent. So anyway, uh, the group showed me the tape and, uh, I liked it and, and therefore the ball started rolling. And so then I left it up to Kevin and the other guys, you know, work out the arrangements, bring him in when we're we're in the area so that we're not up to our, uh, go nads in air travel. So that's how that worked out. So it, it was. Ken was, he was fundamentally sound, but again, he had it, he had something that we needed to, to learn more about.
0: How, um, how devastating is it or damning is it when a guy comes in for a tryout match and it's just not a good match for whatever reason, it just doesn't click Is that the death knell or do you sometimes uh, look at that and chalk it up to, well, it's his first time on the big stage. First time with this opponent. Maybe we should give them another shot. What determines whether or not they get a second look after maybe a less than favorable first outing?
1: Well, you, you look at how the match is laid out that they didn't do so well in. And more importantly, you look at who the person that's uh, trying out uh, is wrestling with, who their opponent is. You know, he mentioned the match with S.A. Rios was not uh, to his liking. And, uh, and the talents know when they have a good night and when they don't. It's like, like we do from our perspective, from our vantage point, but you know, there may have been a language issue there. There could have been a style issue. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure but It's not the kiss of death. If you factor in all the uh, intangibles, but at the end of the day, if you think that, uh, the talent is just not got it and he's not, he does not know how to take a flat back, he doesn't know how to hit the ropes. He doesn't know how to do the fundamental things. And, or he's trying too hard to do things. He's not good at, uh, one of the common, uh, issues of that is punches. A lot of guys think they can throw a punch and they can't, they throw a wrestling, a pro wrestling punch, uh, and it's, it's overtly worked. There's no follow through. There's no science to it. It's like, uh, I was, I've been always amazed at the undertaker's punches. He hit me one time I, on, on the old angles. I just read about the, this, this weekend on the, on the audio book. I didn't even feel, and it looked like it tore my head off. The key is selling. And, uh, then I've had guys like Austin who beat me up in Oklahoma city after he turned heel, uh, unfortunately, and he just laid his shit in. He beat my ass up. Uh, I'm seriously, I had not, he has great big knuckles. Austin does heavy hands. And, uh, he, he said, well, it's on T it's on the, it's on TV. I said, it was, it was taped, Steve. It was taped. So SmackDown, smackdown. we could fix it. So anyway, it was just kind of inside joke there with him, but he heavy hands. But this, this guy's try to do things they can't do. I just think that the styles make matches more often than not. These two guys had never worked together before. It was a big uh, opportunity for Anderson and, uh. You know, we just, we just had, had to, we just moved on because we still saw there was something more we needed to discover.
0: Well, from there, he gets hooked up with TNA through a guy named Bert Prentice who used to promote in uh, Tennessee. He still may actually, uh, and Ken had worked some shots for him. Burt got Davari, ODB and Ken all tryouts with TNA uh, at the time. I think Ken may have even been dating ODB and. They flew from Minneapolis and, uh, on their way down, they sit behind Mr. Perfect and Ken said they had a good talk while on the flight. And, uh, when he gets back to Minnesota, uh, he does some more training with, uh, Brad Reagan's based on the recommendation from Kurt Henning. Anyway, a good,
1: re- good recommendation. Uh, Brad was a, a great teacher and a hell of a wrestler in his day, especially in the amateurs. But he, he was a, he was a good, fundamentally sound teacher. And that's, and I think that's what all those young cats need. They, they learn a little bit think they got it, but the nuances and the, and the skill sets uh, of all aspects of the in-ring game, uh, Brad was really, really good at, uh, at sharing his knowledge and he was a national coach. I think that means a lot too. a lot of talents will withhold information because they don't want to give up their trade secrets, please. God almighty. So, uh, but Brad's good. That was good advice from, from Kirk, uh, to Kennedy.
0: Ken winds up working a, a few times with uh TNA and has a long conversation with Jeff Jarrett, Jeff tells him he's considering him for a group that he wants to start a hitman type of stable. And he gives Ken his uh, contact information and Ken tries calling him every week for about two months, but Jeff never gets back to him. And that's, wow. and
1: that's, that's, a, that's being a real good businessman. Right. You, you recruit a guy, you got an idea. Return a phone call, return a goddamn phone call. And I, I've been, I have seen that so often in the wrestling business and I have probably been guilty of it myself, uh, over my long, long career, but come on, man, return a phone call.
0: So that essentially ends Ken's career and TNA before it ever really gets started. And from there, uh, Ken starts to slow down his bookings and even considers quitting wrestling because he goes through a bankruptcy and almost another one. He's just having a lot of problems and wrestling isn't picking up as fast as he would have liked to. And in the meantime, De'Varri gets hired by WWE and he calls Ken and tells him, Hey, Tommy dreamer took over for Dr. Tom and he's looking for guys on a loop they're doing. And Ken ends up talking to Tommy and Tommy books him for that loop. He said he didn't get much feedback from anyone in the office for his dark matches, but he did get to work with William Regal early on. And William really helped him by letting him get his stuff in on the show that you know, really showcased what he could do. And Ken said one day at one of the shows, about eight of the guys were in the ring and start doing a four on four match and you and Paul Heyman come down and sit ringside and you're talking to each other and kind of watching what they're doing in the ring. After the match, Heyman called Ken over and asked him his name and who trained him and Paul told him he liked his work, which made Ken happy because that was the first time anyone of quote unquote importance had told him that. Do you remember seeing these guys sort of work through a four-on-four match together with Paul?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, he he had a good workout. He had a good outing. Uh, but again, it these things cannot be settled in a ten or fifteen-minute session. It's a repetitive, It's continuity. Did you come to practice Thursday on time? Did you come Friday on time? Were you on time Saturday? Did you bitch about having to practice on Sunday? That kind of thing. It, it's a I know it's an overused word. It's a process. And so, uh, but Paul liked the guy and, uh, and I, I, I liked him too. It's just the same as I said earlier, we had to see more. We knew something good was lying there, but we had, to, it's like having a, 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 gold. We had to go mine it. We had to go search for it, but we thought we could eradicate gold from this talent, but it was a process Uh, to, to, to get what we were looking for, if it was there as we thought.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep it going here. Later that day, Johnny Ace comes and finds Ken and tells him that Paul wanted him to go and do some pre-tapes. And Ken said that was the first time that John had ever given him the time of day. Really? Of course the uh, pre-tapes don't wind up happening. I know that we sometimes use some insider lingo here to some of our listeners who may not be familiar. What in the world is a pre-tape?
1: It's a pre-tape is in a, in a little room as a rule with a green background, uh, talent stand in front of it. And then they're instructed what to talk about by a producer or a wrestling person like Paul. And they basically do uh, auditions on, on promos. They, 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 they practice their, their promos. They're given a topic. They're given a match. They're given a situation that they are able to, uh, in, in the right way, they are able to, uh, be extemporaneous, ad libit, because they're not handed a script and and pre-tapes for things like this. You kind of want to see how they think on their feet, if they can create some thought. Can they have a beginning, a middle, and an end to their promo? So uh, that's what, <clears throat> pardon me, that's what pre-tapes are in that regard. So they never aired on television. They're for practice, and then they 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 kept the tapes so others could they could share them if they were good with other people. Uh, and that's kind of what the tapes were. and it's just another step that hey, we like you, but how, now, how can you talk well, right? can you can you verbally communicate? And that's what we find out in a free tape room.
0: Of course, Ken says that Paul tells him to call the main office on Wednesday and ask for him, and they'll put him right through. Ken wound up <laughs> calling every week for two months and never hears back from Paul. Uh, so Ken continues to get booked on the loops through Tommy dreamer. And the day before the first taboo Tuesday, pay-per-view in four, Lauren, I told him to come back the next day and get to work in the ring before the show starts.
1: We and should point out here that Lauren, Itis obviously had taken my place by that time. That's true. So, uh, that's some of these, inf- this information is a little sketchy. If I had been in my old role, he wouldn't have been waiting on phone calls. Just so you'll know, I ain't trying to break my arm, patting myself on the back, but I do have enough professional courtesy to return a goddamn phone call. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think, Paula, while certainly you
0: can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was
1: super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen.
0: So Ken went the next day, winds up sitting around all day until about 10 minutes before the doors open. And he's sitting down by the ring with uh, Arn Anderson and Laurinaitis and Triple H all there. And Ken gets Arn's attention, and Arn then said something to Johnny, and he told Ken and Devary to get in the ring. So they get to work for a few minutes until the doors open, and afterwards, Arn pulls Ken aside and tells him that he had something. And the next time they were hirings there, Arn told Ken that he'd put his name in. About three months later, Ken gets a call from Devary, and he asked Ken if he got a call from the office. Ken said no. And Devar said, well, they just hired seven guys from Louisville. So I know they're hiring. And about a week later, Ken's still working his regular job as a personal trainer, he starts to, uh, uh head in every day about 5. AM to do this job. And, and then during his, uh, lunchtime break, I guess around noon, he hits the break room and rings up Tommy dreamer and Tommy says, Hey, we've been trying to call you, but we couldn't get a hold of you because the number we had was disconnected. And Ken was calling him from the same number. So he said, no, the number wasn't disconnected. It turns out Tommy was just calling the wrong number this whole time.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, the, the efficiency of the talent relations department in that era was, uh, somewhat, uh, unceremoniously looked at It's so funny. I can't, here's the thing. Here's what, here's what happens. You, so you got a department so far. All we've heard about is no phone calls, no return calls, no follow-up. What the hell's going on? And that's, that's fundamentally wrong. So, uh, but that's funny. Tommy was calling the wrong number. Well, there you go.
0: So Tommy says, Hey, uh, I'm trying to get you a job here and I'm not sure, you know, where is, is the best fit for you in deep South or OVW when Ken would talk to Devari, Devari said, I think going to OVW would be better for you. And, uh, eventually Ken communicates that to Tommy dreamer. And Tommy agrees. So he sends Ken to OVW, which of course is in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. It's ran by Euro pal, Mr. Jim Cornette, but Jim, according to Ken didn't see too much potential in Ken until one day he cut a promo on OVW TV. And after that, Jim told Ken, Hey, I see something in this. And a few weeks later, the whole Santino Marella incident happens. Jim is asked to leave and Paul Heyman comes into OVW to replace Jim and Ken says, after Paul came in, everything was different. I think some of our younger listeners may not be familiar. What's the, uh, sort of the cliff notes version of the whole Jim Cornette Santino situation.
1: Well, uh, Cornette got, uh, what got out of bounds. He had some, what would be perceived as a politically incorrect, uh, interaction with a student and physicality and, uh, you know, uh, Santino. Very tough guy, by the way, very talented, uh, martial artist. He, 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 he's, he laid back. He didn't respond, uh, to Cornette's uh, physicality, but Corny stepped over the line on that occasion and, uh, it wasn't, uh, it was not flattering for the company. And, and of course, uh, you know, that was a Laura deal. I, I couldn't, but I know about the story and the decision was made that, you know, Corny needed to take a break for a while. So that's what happened. He just got. It was unprofessional conduct in the eyes of the decision makers.
0: Let's keep it moving here. Um, talk a little bit philosophically about two of the greatest wrestling minds ever, Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette and how they both had different approaches to OVW Bruce over the years has said that the reason they didn't get along is they were pretty much the same person, just polar opposites. So you know, one's the, the Yankee version and one's the redneck version or whatever phrasing Bruce would use, uh, but they have really, really strong opinions and, and obviously have had great deals of success, uh, each, but, uh, a certainly different mentality of what wrestling is or isn't, uh, how do you think their differences were as far as running OVW?
1: Strictly in the communication aspect, both the Cornette and Heyman have and ha- have now and had then great product knowledge. Uh, they both had, uh, you know, they both were a lot, a lot alike as, as uh, Bruce mentioned, you know, they both started out as teenage ringside photographers, they both uh, were unlikely guys to get, uh, uh, entry into the behind the scenes world of pro wrestling, uh, Cornette with Jarrett's and Lawler. And of course, uh, Heyman with the, the McMahon's uh, Vince senior. So, uh, it, it, they had great the similar product knowledge. Excellent. Really excellent. Uh, but they had different communication skills and, and Heyman knew how to uh, grease the skids a little bit better than Cornette who had less patience and was, could be more abrupt as we see on his podcast from time to time or on social media. Uh, he'll tell you what time it is instead of how to make the watch. Heyman is a, well, we just had a different, different, uh, presentation skills. So that was the main thing is that Cornette's bombastic approach, uh, did not, was not comfortable with Heyman. Uh, but, but both of them had, you know, I thought, I thought, uh, in that developmental thing that we, we created when I was the head of talent relations, that they both were invaluable. I still believe that they could both be invaluable. Heyman has shown that on WWE and, uh, Cornette's kind of burned out, you know, he's, He's doing his podcast. He's still got a brilliant mind, but, uh, the communication skill set was the main difference,
0: uh, Ken really hits it off with Paul and, uh, he thinks that Paul is probably the second most important piece of Ken's career at the time, uh, Ken had really helped him with his promos, which you've heard a lot over the years, you know, as a, a descriptor for Paul, even going back to Steve Austin. And in his brief stint in ECW in 1995, that's where a lot of, you know, Steve finding his voice really happened is working with Paul. Why do you think Paul is so good at that? Like of all the skills that that Paul has in professional wrestling with the mind for creative and things like that, what guys always go back to is those vignettes and those promos where it's just him pouring his heart out into the camera, Paul really knows how to pull that out what is it about Paul that brings out the best in people in that spot?
1: Paul's an excellent producer and, uh, he has vision and he has, he's not, and not a cloudy vision. Uh, and if he's, if he's, if he's with you and he believes you got something, how many times already this, since we've been talking had various ones said, we thought Ken Anderson had something aren't right. aren't thought it. I thought it, others thought it, uh, Tommy dreamer thought all these guys, Kevin, all of the, we thought he had something. So Paul was just good at uh, visualizing the finished product or visualizing the more refined product after practice, after tutoring and things of that nature. So he just had that great ability to look at a talent and see where they might be on the food chain. Once they, uh, had the teaching and the coaching and the motivation, uh, to communicate better. And he also was good about seeing things in the ring that even though Paul is not a worker in a physical worker, he had the ability to watch a match and say, that's wrong. That's right. That's he does that real good. He doesn't need to do that anymore type thing. So that's the issue there with Paul. He just had that wonderful ability to see the finished product. And if left unfettered, left unrestrained. Uh, and not with the bureaucracy of a corporate company that's always intervening where others in that process feel so compelled to add their two cents in so that they, they not the talent, so that they don't get left out of the credit that will go around when this talent becomes a star.
0: Paul really knows how to hype up and motivate some of his players. And and one of which is, uh, is Ken here where he's, saying, Hey, I see the same things in you that people saw and in, in Steve Austin and the rock, you've got it. And we're going to do some big stuff together and WWE is going to call you up. And over the course of the next five weeks, Paul's coming up with a lot of different things for Ken to do on TV to get the exposure, uh, and, and ring time. And Paul's also letting Ken come up with some of his own ideas. And when Ken would, Paul would tell him that he loved the idea, which would keep Ken encouraged, uh, to sort of keep being creative. And one day when Ken's about to go through the curtain to the ring, Paul stops him and tells him to cut the ring announcer off and tell him he wasn't worthy of doing his introduction and then just do his own introduction. And Ken used to announce basketball when he was in high school and he would sometimes say the guy's last name twice. So that's immediately what Ken thought of and when Paul told him to do his own introduction. So when Ken gets back to the dressing room, he got a bunch of compliments from guys saying they popped when he said his last name twice. And over the next few weeks, the reaction keeps getting bigger every time he does it. And a few weeks later, uh, Tommy calls Ken and tells him they wanted him on TV on the main roster the very next week. So it's interesting how quickly this sort of clicks when the creative is right. Who was monitoring OVW tapes at the time and calling guys up Would that have been Johnny ACE,
1: uh, he's probably going to be the one that call him up after they were singled out or, or we, we you know, they saw that what this guy had. The promo thing was an ingenious idea. It made, uh, it make, uh, Kennedy, Ken Anderson stand out, uh, and be different, be unique. I thought it was very entertaining, quite frankly. And I did see a lot of, he was, you could, you could tell that, that, that uh, Ken was channeling, uh, his role model, Stone Cold, not a bad role model, by the way. Uh, in his walk, he walked like Stone Cold. He carried himself in the ring like he perceived Stone Cold did. Uh, so when the promo thing hit and they heard his voice, uh, how his voice resonated and it cut through the clutter, that closed the circle on the the Ken Anderson. He has something. It closed the circle because now you know he's got uh, good in-ring skills. He's pretty athletic. He's got a decent look. And he has a, he has a very good gift of gab. So they closed the circle with that one element that we didn't know a lot about, uh, how's he going to talk and how's he going to sound? And does he have timing and etc. cetera, et cetera. So that closed the circle And, the, and then when the circle got closed, there's only one more thing to do. You bring him up.
0: That's exactly right. And it's time here. Uh, it, it's gotta be a big moment when you finally get this call. Uh, Ken is set to work with Funaki on velocity. And he says, while he's at gorilla before he goes out, Vince comes up and sits Ken down, which he didn't normally do before the dark matches. And, uh, and then Ken goes out and had a match. And when he came back, Vince gave him the old thumbs up and told him he liked it. And then Johnny ACE comes and tells him he's got a job and guys on the crew said that while Ken was wrestling, Vince was on the headset thing, saying things like this guy gets it. Where has he been these last few years? Um, how often is a guy like this on Vince's radar this early? Can you think of any other instances?
1: Oh, not off the top of my head. I mean, of course, when we signed, uh, when we were recruiting Brock, you know, Vince had that accidental bumping into Brock at a, at a at an event in uh, WWE event in Minneapolis that got, and we hadn't even signed him. He had never had a moment's training in wrestling. He was on Vince's radar prominently. Uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Vince said I thought he was a Viking. God damn he's a Viking Jr. <laughs> so I said, I think he's more like a Herford bull. What's a herford bull? <laughs> so anyhow, uh, no I Kennedy had the promo stuff got him in. his entering his look he was a solid entering hand, no doubt uh, and, and, and it was deserving of a spot on the roster. And hopefully in a higher, high level, that was remained to be seen. But when he, when we heard him talk and how he resonated, now he projected himself, uh, like I said, it closed the circle and answered a lot of questions. But Vince liked him. He knew that he was an athletic enough guy that if he was a heel, he could feed a comeback. He could do the baby face makes a comeback and he's athletic enough to do two or three spots with the, uh, uh, on the comeback. And that's always a key thing when you're looking at. Signing a guy to make him a heel. Can he feed a comeback? And Kennedy could certainly do that.
0: A few weeks later, Ken is told that Vince wants him to change his name. Um, before that he was just going by his real name, Ken Anderson. And Ken was told that Vince wanted to have a meeting with him about it. And during the meeting, there's several people in there. It's Vince, Stephanie, Johnny, Kevin Dunn, and others. And Ken is asking, or Ken says the Vince asked him several questions like, kind of person is he, does he do drugs? And then they get to the name subject earlier in the day, Ken called Paul Heyman and said, Hey, Vince wants me to change my name. And when Ken was on the Indies, he had worked as Kamikaze Ken. And he had a a KK on his tights for that. And he told Paul that he wanted to try and come up with something that started with a K and Paul told him he should come up with something that's near and dear to Vince's heart. So they're throwing out all these different ideas. And Paul said his dog's name is ruckus and his other's name, his other dog's name was rumpus, maybe Kenny rumpus, but none of those <laughs> names were really fitting. And then Paul says, what about Kennedy? And Ken was unsure of it. And then Paul said, Kennedy is Vince's middle name. So Ken says he'd think about it back to the meeting. Ken tells Vince that his persona, uh, that his persona was that he was an asshole and, uh, so Johnny says, what about Adam hole? Then you can say oh, a hole. And Ken said, Vince looked at Johnny and asked, what do you think? And Ken said, that's a good idea, but that's a gimmicky name. And I plan on being here for a long time. And I'd like to uh, have a name that doesn't feel like it's for someone who's going to be here a year and then out the door. And Vince agrees with Ken. And then Ken says, what about Ken Kennedy? And Vince said, well, there's never been a Kennedy before in the business. And what do you know? He asked him if he likes it. And Ken says, no, honestly, I like Anderson, but if you're hell bent against using the name Anderson. And Vince said, I am. And he said, well, there you go. Um, Ken Kennedy will do, but you can call me Mr. Dickhead if you want to. It's your show. (laughs) So Vince said right then he turns to Kevin Dunn and Hey, make sure he's got Kennedy on his trunks when he goes out to the ring tonight. So not long after that, Vince tells him he wants to start hanging around a little more so he can get to know him and he can know the system. And, uh, he's off to the races. This has got to be. High fives all around when you get private time with the boss, like this, we're freestyling the creative for my name and my character. And Vince says, hang around me more. Uh, that's gotta be the relationship that matters most in your run in WWE. Right?
1: Absolutely. It's the same thing. I said many times to talents, uh, who want to meet with Vince converse and don't confront, uh, that's how that works. Simple, no exceptions. You're not going to get what you want. You're going to get, uh, he's going to close his mind off. If you confront him, it's not going to work for you. But if you want to test your, how big your balls are and be the first guy ever to intimidate Vince, then give it a shot. And then I'll see you as you leave the door, I leave the building. Uh, what Vince was doing, Conrad, he was also doing Lauren Ninas job. These meetings, he didn't have all these meetings when I was doing that job. Right. Maybe that's a mis- maybe, And maybe that's a mistake. Maybe he should have been, but we we're doing pretty good hiring talent that, that stuck and made it. Uh, so he didn't probably see a need to, it tells me McMahon may not have had the total, uh, total, uh, level of confidence in Laurenitis, who was pretty new on his job and had to follow, you know, all our team that I had assembled who did a great job of, of uh, securing talents. That's how I look at this from my eyes. Is that Vince was doing a little bit of the, t- the head of talent relations job. And I sense that the reason of that was cause Lauren was new, just getting his feet wet and Vincent had not developed yet. The confidence in Johnny to, uh, to let him sail the ship by himself.
0: Well, after this, uh, obviously Ken's working full-time with the company and, uh, he jumps in the car with his old pal Davari, and Davari had hooked up with Bobby Lashley. So they're, they become a, a three man band, uh, making the towns and one day Batista pulls Ken aside and says, "Hey, why aren't you traveling with these guys? You're not going to learn anything traveling with new guys. You need to start traveling with a vet if you really want to learn the business." So Ken takes that advice and goes and asks Crispin Juan if he can start riding with him and Benoit says he can. So magically, he's riding with Crispin and Eddie Guerrero, and of course he's going to be the driver, but he's going to learn a whole lot from those guys. What do you think of that advice from Batista? You're not going to learn anything riding with new guys. Go pick a vet and ride with him.
1: Well, uh, you know, the, you're not going to learn anything might be a little bit of an overstatement, but overall it was a very good, good advice. Uh, Batista, uh, was a subject or a product of that environment because he traveled with flair and, uh, and Levesque and two, two no, no two guys better. That's who he hung with. So, uh, anytime you can hang with flair and, and uh, triple H, you're going to learn a hell of a lot about the business. Just in those, those cars become classrooms. And, uh, that's even less in today a lot because of travel, the bookings, the schedules a little bit different. So you're not in the car as much, or at least a lot of guys are not, uh, but it was good advice from Batista. And, uh, you know, if I had to pick two guys for, uh, to learn from for a young talent, like Ken, uh, Benoit and Guerrero will be it because they understood the art of storytelling, the science and the art of pro wrestling. And here's the most important thing, Conrad, both guys were willing to give out themselves, their time, their knowledge to another guy. They were happy to pass, play it forward as they say that today. So it was good advice from Batista. And the exactly the right decision. And I wouldn't be surprised if Heyman wasn't uh, a little bit involved in that decision making of because uh, he became the confidant of, of Anderson and Kennedy uh, more than anybody. And so that was a good suggestion. So he made a real good move there to ride with uh, Eddie and Chris.
0: Pretty cool of Batista to pull him aside and give a new guy uh, some tips like that too. Kennedy makes his pay-per-view debut at the No Mercy 05 pay-per-view where he picks up a win over hardcore Holly on the November 11th episode of SmackDown. He's facing Eddie Guerrero to compete for a spot on SmackDown's Survivor Series team. He loses the match when Guerrero tosses him a steel chair and plays possum, a move which Guerrero had made famous. The groggy referee turns around, sees Guerrero on the ground, sees Kennedy holding the chair and immediately DQ's Kennedy, uh, awarding the place on Team SmackDown to Guerrero. In retaliation, Guerrero starts striking, uh, or Kennedy starts hitting Guerrero over the head with the chair after the match. And this is Guerrero's final televised match as he winds up passing away on November 13th in his hotel room in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more detail some other time. Uh, but what a devastating day when we lost Eddie Guerrero and, and it's pretty fortunate, I guess that Ken got to spend a little time with him in the car. And, uh, he didn't know it at the time, but a a great little footnote in history that he got to be in the ring with him the final time.
1: Yeah. uh, Eddie's passing was shattering. It broke hearts legitimately, uh, just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I know as We have talked about before Conrad, I getting Eddie and all the, all the radicals hired wasn't an automatic layup as one would think. Now, once they got in the system and they started playing for the team, everybody loved them as most of us thought they would, but, uh, they got over all the normal roadblocks, but Eddie was a, uh, he was just a, uh, yeah. I think somebody we talked about this the other day. I think Bruce mentioned on uh, our meeting at Vince's house that Eddie, Eddie was the Mexican version of Shawn Michaels. Right. And there's, that's a great, uh, that's a great illustration quite frankly, great uh, analogy, but it broke hearts, man. I mean, it's like, you know, Eddie dying of a heart attack was just what you sure? And it was just terrible. I, I, uh, I felt so sorry for Vicky. She's just a nice person and two little girls still growing up now without a dad. And it wasn't just, we lost a star and a hall of fame guy, but it was more than that. He, Eddie was a, Eddie was a spirit within that locker room that you could not ignore. And when people interacted with him, sometimes they got the Andre, the giant version of Eddie, and that would be, he's telling me when I drink hard liquor, I'm Andre, but I don't want to be when I drink beer, I'm happy, go lucky, a uh, laugh a minute, at Eddie. So I'd always tell him, said, so, do you have beer last night? Or you have, you have a tequila. <laughs> So he was just, he was, I loved him. And I still think a lot about him. He was just such a nice guy. And all those discussions, you and I talked about the fact, you know, where he had to open a show in a pay-per-view and he pissed him off. And I think Malenko, Dean or Perry, Saturday said, boy, you need to talk to Chris. hes or excuse me, you need to talk to Eddie. He's really, really pissed off. So I'm thinking, well, what, to he get a bad payoff? Or, cause it's usually one of the two C's, right? Cash or creative. Right. And it was, it was creative. He didn't want to open the show. And I explained to him how important that was. And as we go forward and talk about some of these other pay-per-views, I know we'll do some WrestleMania shows. Look at some of those matches that opened the show at WrestleMania, the pay-per-view, the main pay-per-view broadcast. It was imperative that those matches deliver and, and wake up the crowd and start building the momentum that can crescendo at the very last match of the night. So it was, it was a paramount thing but he didn't understand it, but he did understand, but he did understand it. And he stormed up to gorilla like he was six feet six and he had a match. Like he looked around and said that I was told that, okay, guys follow this shit. Good luck. And he went out there and <laughs> had match. So, uh, he, he, the spirit of Eddie Guerrero should always be in the WWE locker rooms. He's always in my heart, but boy, when he died, Conrad, it was a, the air just went out and you know, it's like, I don't want to do this anymore today. I want to, I need to step back for a while, but it was, you couldn't step back cause the, the machine never stopped running and we're in a business that has no off season, uh, and you're, have no, and you're working, you know, multiple days a week uh, on the road, traveling and then bouncing around. Uh, it's just, it's very daunting. And, uh, but boy, he was, he was so special.
0: In uh two thousand five in December, uh Kennedy would participate in the WWE's overseas tour, and on the second day in Italy, Ken suffers a pretty serious injury. And he's gonna be uh forced out of the ring for nearly six months while he's rehabbing. He continues to make appearances though on SmackDown and Velocity throughout January and February, and even makes an appearance on the January eleventh bite this with Todd Grisham to maintain some visibility. Um, at the OVW tapings on May 10th, Kennedy would return to in-ring action facing the heavyweight champion of OVW, CM Punk, in a title match that Kennedy lost. And Kennedy said that, uh, when they were in OVW together, Ken didn't like Punk because he felt like Punk buried him on commentary once. And he didn't overall like Punk's attitude. And, uh, they later became friends and got along great. But what was it about CM Punk that, for whatever reason, rub people the wrong way until they got to know him.
1: Uh, he was honest and he was caustic. He played his character very well. That was his persona in real life. Phil Brooks has an opinion in real life. Phil Brooks is a smart guy and he had no intimidation of anybody else. He's a fearless son of a gun. So he had no issues, ex- uh, expressing his true opinion within the storyline confines of pro wrestling. So sometimes uh, uh, CM Punk was maybe for some guy's taste too honest. I never had a crossword with him, never, with uh, Phil Brooks. I've always respected him. I still do. Uh, and it's a matter, again, Conrad, it's just like life. It's like you and your mortgage company. You can't close mortgages if you can't communicate. Yeah. If your team can't communicate, Conrad and family are screwed. They got to be able to communicate, and uh, I always felt like I could, if I could listen to a guy long enough to kind of feel feel and, and his good things and bad things that he likes and, and don't likes, then well I can communicate with him, and I what I did with Phil, but he's outspoken, spoke his opinion, he had a very strong beliefs in on what pro wrestling should be, and did not mind sharing that even though it might be a contrarian opinion. To the establishment, that was not his issue. He was going to stand by his principles, stand by what he believed in, and share that with anybody that would listen. And I think that he got Kennedy's attention because let's face it, CM at that time, CM Punk was far advanced skill set wise than uh, Mr. Kennedy, far over. But so he just probably was motivating him. Uh, Punk was probably motivating Kennedy. That's why I see it, and it worked. So then they end up becoming friends and, and then, uh, now, uh, punk and Kennedy could share information on a positive level out of respect, as opposed to, you know, let's get your shit together. I'm, I'm, I'm ribbing on the square here. I'm, you know, I'm cutting a promo on commentary, but understand it's part of the, the, the showbiz aspect. Uh, but I think it was maybe that ribbing on the square thing as well. Like I got some information for you here. Here's how you're going to listen to it. Cause I'm, I'm putting on the broadcast. And so I, I thought it was a unique way of motivating uh, Kennedy, but it worked. And uh, I think Kennedy should always be grateful uh, to see him punk for that honesty.
0: Kennedy finally makes his return to SmackDown on the June 9th episode with a victory over Scotty Too Hottie. He uses the Kenton bomb uh, on the July 14th SmackDown. Matt Hardy uses a roll up to defeat Kennedy, and this would essentially end Kennedy's streak of never being defeated by pinfall or submission. Uh, we should mention that, uh, Ken has gone on record as saying that after Eddie passed away, Chris Benoit started traveling with friends like Ray Mysterio and Chava Guerrero and Ken realized they were great friends dealing with Eddie's passing. So he steps back, removes himself from that. And then Matt Hardy would approach him about traveling together and eventually hurricane Helms joins. Uh, so now they're uh, a traveling trio. How critical is it? Uh, to find guys that you sort of click with and mesh with when you're traveling on the road. I mean, everybody loves the idea of the in-ring stuff and most people enjoy the creative, but entertaining the fans is one thing, but the travel is the part of this business that maybe people don't pay enough attention to that really grinds guys down
1: many, many hours in the car together. Just think of, uh, going to Wally world with the uh, Griswolds, that car trip started out pretty good. <laughs> and then it didn't end up so well when they got to Wally world, it's imperative. You got to have compatibility. You got to, you got to share likes. You can't just always eat at the waffle house. If that's what you're going for. You got to share it, make Cracker barrel, throw Cracker barrel in there every now and then or whatever. The point is flexibility, being able to, uh, uh, compromise is a big, cause I guess a real key word, but it's really, really important when you're on the road that much can and you're confined in a car, uh, there's a lot of issues that go into play there. And, you know, Matt Hardy's a very easy guy to, to communicate with. He's also, uh, has great product knowledge and his knowledge could really help, uh, Kennedy and notwithstanding the fact that, you know, uh, hurricane Gregory Helms uh, is also another guy that had great com- com- camaraderie with Matt from the North Carolina roots. And, uh, hurricane's got a good mind for the rest of the business as well. Very good. As a matter of fact, uh, he's WWE's lucky to have him as a, as a producer. So, uh, it was a good company, uh, for both guys, for all involved. And I think it helped. Uh, I think it helped Ken a lot. Traveling with those guys, it kind of switched off. It's like he graduated from one car to another. Right. And so the, he graduated from Eddie and Chris to, uh, Matt and the hurricane not a bad trade off, different set of eyes, different set of philosophy, uh, but good solid pros and Matt Hardy and hurricane Helms have always been in my eyes, really good, solid pros that anybody should be proud to work with or ride with
0: the July 21st Smackdown. Batista puts out an open challenge to find an opponent for the great American bash as his original opponent, Mark Henry has been injured. Kennedy accepts the challenge and wins the match by DQ, but he winds up taking a pretty severe injury here during the match. He's thrown headfirst into the steel steps and winds up getting a uh a cut that requires 20 stitches to close. Uh, so then he enters a short feud with Batista, defeats him by count out in their second match, but loses by pinfall in the third. Do you think this is too much too soon for a guy who's relatively new on the roster to be working with a top guy, or is this what you've got to do to sort of test your metal and see if the fans are going to buy it or not too?
1: maybe a little soon, maybe just a little bit premature in hindsight at the time, it felt like the right thing to do. I'm sure for creative and, uh, and the, and the power brokers that, you know, we got to get this guy in deep water and see how he does. So there's an argument on both sides of the coin as it worked out. Uh, I believe that uh, Kennedy would have been better served if that uh, big match of Batista, that program, that three match thing, uh, was a little bit uh, held a little bit later on in his run. Uh, not that later, not that much later, but you, you just you're setting up a three match program. He got a count out win, and he lost. Or two matches. They had two matches. They had two or three matches. I can't remember. Uh, but nonetheless. Uh, it 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 was a little bit premature in my opinion, Conrad. I, I he wasn't quite ready for prime time, but he was damn close. So it's arguable on either either side. It's not a deal breaker one way or the other. But as it worked out, uh, at the end of the day, all he's going to do is the job for Batista, which is fine. Batista's a huge star and bigger than Kennedy was. But it certainly was a it was a little early in the game to, for me for that to happen.
0: Kennedy winds up helping the McMahons, Vince and Shane, in their feud with DX, appearing at both SummerSlam and on the August 28th Raw to help attack DX. And uh, Ken has gone on record as saying he always wanted to work an angle with Triple H, but it never happened. He worked with Triple H in singles one time, and then the next week he was back to working mid card guys. And of course, that leads Ken to maybe be a little paranoid, which is certainly something that can be said about a lot of performers in the wrestling industry. He said essentially triple H was always nice to his face, but if triple H ever had a problem with him, he never said anything to him directly. Uh, and there's lots of conspiracy theories about triple H in this era, whether that's fair or not, they exist. Do you think triple H maybe didn't like Ken?
1: I I don't know that to be factual. I know that it was, it would be easy to make a case that because Vince liked Kennedy so much that it might've ruffled the feathers of, uh, triple H who Vince also liked very much, uh, obviously, uh, it might've been a little friction there. I don't know. I never heard that, but, uh, Kennedy was Kennedy carried himself like a main event guy and sometimes other main event guys perceive that that can be a, a little bit arrogant and maybe that had a, a play in it. I don't know, but I never heard directly that. Uh, Triple H did not like Kennedy. Uh again, I wasn't a head of talent at that time. I wasn't I wasn't in I wasn't asking those questions. I wasn't sitting down with Kennedy and say, Are you okay? What's your you know, you have any issues? How can I help you? Any of that stuff. I assume Lornidas is doing that. I don't know. But uh Vince liked Kennedy. And when Vince likes somebody, sometimes that person gets uh the bullseye on their chest for any for some stupid effing Perverse reason. I have no idea. Everybody wants FaceTime with the boss and if you're taking more than your share in their eyes, uh, then you're on the shit list.
0: On the September 1st episode of SmackDown Kennedy would defeat Finley and Bobby Lashley in a triple threat match to win the United States championship. This would be his first and would turn out to be his only championship reign in WWE on the September 8th SmackDown Kennedy would then announce that he wants to move over to raw. Because SmackDown no longer interests him because he's defeated every top performer on the roster. Of course, this brings out Teddy Long, who says, Well, that's not true, player. Now you're going to go one-on-one with the Undertaker. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Kennedy had never faced him. That match is going to go down at no mercy. And in the match, believe it or not, Kennedy gets the win by DQ. And Ken has gone on record as saying the Undertaker helped him out a lot. And Taker liked how Ken worked and he gave an example when Taker would have him in the corner and start punching him, Ken would try to cover up and get away. Like it was a real fight and Taker told him to keep doing that because it set him apart when you're getting feedback from the dead man, uh, you're doing things right. Are right? you not? Know
1: Absolutely. And it also goes to speak volumes of what kind of man Mark Calloway is, uh, at the top of the mountain, he's the Babe roof of WWE, no matter all the great guys. Uh, the Bruno's and the backlands and the bread Hart's and the Hogan's the Austin's the rocks that far as tenure and what he means to the locker room. No one can be placed ahead of the undertaker in my eyes. Uh, I can see having a, uh, a hall of fame with one entrant, him, uh, and having people that he worked with over the years, uh, do little presentations and talk in the video clips. Uh, Mark is that kind of guy. Takes his time, takes his time to help you, and that's what the old veterans always did. Because it just stands to reason that if Mark can create a new dancing partner, i.e., Mr. Kennedy, he's got somebody that he likes to working with. He knows he's not going to uh, beat him, you know, uh, be careless and and silly. So it's it's smart for him. But absolutely, we're working with Mark was a a great thing, and to show you. How much Vince and and uh, others thought of uh, Kennedy, he didn't put, take her over. He, could, he would have obviously if he'd been asked. But they thought enough about it. Said, so "Well, let's go beat him," you know. So they got the the DQ finish, and and uh, and Kennedy had a significant outing as far as perception is concerned in that match.
0: On the October 13th, SmackDown Kennedy now with a win over the undertaker says, all right, I'm going to move to the raw brand. Of course, Teddy long comes out and says, hang on first, you've got to take on Chris Benoit to defend your us title. And if you win, I'll give you your release and you can go to raw. Of course we know that's not going to happen. Kennedy winds up losing the match and the United States championship to Chris Benoit. He submits to the crippler cross face following a distraction by the undertaker. And this is actually Kennedy's first loss by submission. So now we've got Kennedy with his first pinfall loss, his first submission loss, and he's lost his United States title. November of six, Kennedy's going to team up with MVP and matches against the Brothers of Destruction. Of course, that's Kane and the Undertaker. And on the November on a November episode of SmackDown, Kennedy and MVP would lose to those guys three times. After first getting counted out, Teddy Long would restart the match with no countouts. They would disqualify themselves after a low blow would restart the match again with no count outs and no DQs, uh, pretty fun stuff in this era of SmackDown. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah. good, Interesting booking. They, uh, they made chicken salad out of chicken shit, so to speak, uh, with that kind of finish where you start, stop, start, stop might've been one too many starts, but we'll, you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah, but still here's the point for both Kennedy and MVP to get the rub, to be in the ring, to get the association. With Taker and Kane was big business, no matter the outcome. For them to hang, them meaning Kennedy and MVP, to hang with the, the Brothers of Destruction was a good thing.
0: A great thing, in fact. And they start a singles feud after that. Kane working with, with uh, MVP and Kennedy working with The Undertaker. Uh, their first match is at Survivor Series. Uh, it's later announced as being a first blood match. Kennedy would win the match after MVP turned on him and aims for his head with a steel chair, but he, of course, misses, hits Undertaker instead, leaving him bleeding. And after the match, the Undertaker attacked Kennedy, causing him to bleed. At Armageddon, Kennedy and the Undertaker would meet in a final match. This was scheduled to be a last-ride match. Of course, you know, just based on the name, the Undertaker gets the win over Kennedy. But it's a big deal for a guy who's relatively new to the WWE to have a singles program with the Undertaker, and Kennedy's getting a good push, you know. Here, uh, essentially positioned as a top guy through most of '06, and after a brief hiatus, he returns to SmackDown on January 5th, 2007, and actually picks up a win over Chris Benoit in a beat-the-clock match. With the overall prize being a shot at Batista's World Heavyweight Championship at the Royal Rumble, and uh, after he prevented Undertaker from beating his time, Kennedy's time of five minutes and seven of seconds ended up being the fastest which means now he's got a world title shot at the pay-per-view of course, at the Royal rumble, he would lose the match after a Batista bomb and he lost a rematch, but still, uh, this is rare air here. When you're working with the undertaker and Batista, they definitely saw something and, uh, the Kennedy character here.
1: Absolutely. This again, another piece of evidence that McMahon liked Kennedy. He liked his game and when Vince liked something you find that others who may heretofore have had a contrasting opinion now all of a sudden start starts to like it more and uh and and be more public about their likes because Vince liked it. Uh but on this case I thought, you know, Vince saw Vince saw good things. Vince saw the same things that we saw uh one of those of us that had a chance to watch his uh videos, his, his matches from the Indies, there was something there and Vince knew there was something there, Conrad, but he just couldn't quite harness it yet. But he was, Vince was going on his guts and his instincts, which, uh, have been pretty damn good for a uh, many, for, for a long time as far as creating stars. So, uh, uh Kennedy was on the upward track, man. Yep. He was, he was moving right up the, right up to the East side. Tell everybody,
0: I think you mentioned it in the book that whenever someone would sort of question one of Vince's creative decisions, didn't he have a phrase like, um, check my track record or something like that?
1: That was it. Well, just check my track record. If you don't believe I'm on target and he, look, he that was a great argument because look at all the guys that under Vince's leadership became hall of fame millionaires. Uh, pretty damn impressive list. So. Uh, no matter what we may not like the color blue that he paints the barn uh, he got the barn painted and it, it, it may not be our color blue it may be royal blue it might not be navy blue but he wanted his color blue is what was going on in the barn and so that's kind of where I look at vince he's he knows what he's doing in that regard now in the latter years with well, the audience changing and the social media becoming a much bigger aspect and factor into the whole process, it's harder to build baby faces because you have a, uh, primarily a very young male defiant audience. And sometimes they don't, they like evil over good simply as a, uh, a, a, a part of their, their defiance and their personality. But yeah, he checked my track record and he's right. You know, I, I told, I told a lot of guys that were recruiting. I said, look, Vince can make you a star. Look at his track record. And because a lot of the guys that Vince had made stars, Hulk and all these other cats, Brett, Austin, Savage, all these guys, uh, they were, they had something and Vince found what that something was. He mined the gold. And, uh, and, and that's what we found at the end of the rainbow, that pot of gold. Those guys made money.
0: From there, Kennedy begins a short feud with the ECW world champion, Bobby Lashley, which leads to a match at no way out for that title. Kennedy picks up the win, but it's by DQ. So the title doesn't change hands. And he would challenge Lashley unsuccessfully for the title on both ECW and SmackDown, but eventually Kennedy earns a spot in the O7 money in the bank ladder match by defeating Sabu at extreme rules. And, uh, WrestleMania 23. Here we are. We got a lot of talent in here, CM Punk. Edge, Matt Hardy, Booker T, Randy Orton, Jeff Hardy, and Finley, all in this Money in the Bank ladder match, where, of course, if you win, you have the right to challenge any world champion in the company until WrestleMania 24. And when you think about that list CM Punk, Edge, Matt Hardy, Booker T, Randy Orton, Jeff Hardy, Finley, all Hall of Famers, Mr. Kennedy gets the win. And Ken was led to believe that after he won his match, he's going to get the world title reign, but. We know that doesn't happen, but my goodness, to be in a featured spot on a WrestleMania with all these bona fide Hall of Famers, this is a hell of a spot to be in.
1: Again, evidence that uh, the the office uh, of, of events and company had great hope and uh, plans for Kennedy. They visualized what they thought they had and where it would be in the big picture once it read had come to full gestation. And I think that, uh, I think that, that, obviously when you win that money in the bank ladder match, uh, it had it, that, that, had, that concept had worked for talents that had won that match. Conrad go, I mean, we do our research. Uh, I think, you know, Kennedy was just, he was an avarition. Everybody thought that Kennedy, because the president was going to become the champion because he won the money in the bank. Uh, but that was not to be.
0: Uh, Kennedy announced on the April 30th, raw, that he would be cashing in his money in the bank championship opportunity at WrestleMania 24 undertaker was champ at the time. And, uh, Vince tells Ken, he's going to win the title because Taker had an injury. He's going to cash in the money in the bank contract on Taker before he beat Batista and win the title. And Vince said the whole scenario was about Batista and he'd eventually get the title once his stock started to drop. Uh, but Vince felt he was doing good and he didn't need the title at the time. And a few days later, Ken's working Batista, Batista sends him into the corner, and when Ken comes out he takes a clothesline and when he took the bump he felt a pop in his arm. And he said his arm immediately started to swell. He had an MRI and found out that his triceps muscle had torn completely off the bone and he's gonna have to get surgery and be out like seven or eight months. Stephanie calls Ken with the MRI results and tells him that um Vince is on his way or Vince's jet is on its way to pick him up and bring him to the arena so he can drop the money in the bank briefcase to edge because they had to get the title off of the undertaker right now. And Ken said, he regrets that he didn't say something to Steph Like what if we do this and gave an alternate idea and he felt like he was essentially, uh, giving up an opportunity and not putting up a fight for it. And maybe people got the wrong impression. Uh, but he was just trying to do what they asked or just trying to do business. Do you think that that is Ken getting in his own head? Should he have pitched another idea or tried to fight a little harder to keep it, uh, or was it the right thing to do to just do what they asked?
1: Well, at the end of the day, you want to do what they ask, uh, and to protect the title and the plans for the title. The, the salvation for Ken was the fact that they did have high hopes for him, uh, obviously. Uh, by winning the money in the bank ladder match, high hopes, uh, to be talked about of, uh, regarding, uh, the undertaker's title and Ken becoming that champion, that's big, big news. That's bigger than anything he could have told them or they could have told him uh, that was the biggest thing in his career at that point in time. Here's where we're going to go. Uh, but when, you know, Ken had these injury issues and, uh, I'm not blaming him, it's just a part of the damn game. It ain't ballet. And sometimes it was the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and you end up on the injured list. So, uh, the, I was, I was surprised that that's how it was going to be done. Uh, but anyway, he, he, he did it. He did his, he did his work, but yes, Conrad Ken should have had a nice. Pleasant conversation and pitched his idea. Nobody's going to, I don't think anybody's going to say, and there may be some talents along. We have a lot of talents. Listen to our show; they're going to roll their eyes on this one. But Stephanie would have listened, and she would have shared the information uh, with uh, her father. And if Vince liked it, he may have gone for it. But if you never pitch it, you know it's not going to be accepted because they don't know about it. Right. So yeah, he should he should have made his idea known in a nice, professional way, and uh, not like I'm not doing that. Oh, well, I'm not doing that. Here's what I will do. No, here's what you won't do. You won't be working here if you don't do what we want you to do. You can't, you got to run the plays that are called pal. So he should have said something in a, in a positive way in pitching his idea. But at the end of the day, it's inevitable that they had to get the, the the title off of the the money in the bank title off of Ken. So they could continue on with business. Every company uh, is always charged Conrad on protecting their championships. If championships have come too frequent and they're changed too often. They they'd start losing credibility, and uh, that's and so protecting the championship uh, and the WWE title to boot was uh, has always been a priority for for WWE. It's a priority for AEW. You know, so it's it, your your main title has to be uh, embraced and protected, and that's what Vince is trying to do there with that, that decision.
0: So as we said, you know, we know what's gonna happen here. It's all about the money in the bank case. The May seventh raw, Kennedy is gonna lose his money in the bank contract to Edge. Edge is gonna cash in on the May eleventh SmackDown and beat the Undertaker for the title. Of course, in theory, this is the night that Ken was supposed to do it. I mean, had this injury not happened, do you think that this would have been Ken Kennedy's spot and he would have become champ
1: here? Yeah, absolutely. That's that was the plan. That was the plan. That's why he won the money in the bank ladder match to to be able to take, to be positioned to take the next step. Uh, but again, his body gave out on him and uh, the tricep injury was serious and he was off for several months and it's not an injury that you can jack around with because once they get, once that, that tricep gets reattached, the, uh, you got to nurse that, that, uh, that reattachment, uh, like in kid gloves. Uh, cause it could, it's very easy for it to be, to pop loose again, if you don't let it heal. So, uh, it was, but I think he was a guy again, Vince McMahon had great confidence in the potential of Mr. Kennedy, and he believed this kid had something to be that chicken shit heel. He's not going to overpower you with his size. Uh, he's going to beat you by his cunning, his, uh, skill set. Uh, cheating to gain an unfair advantage. Uh, like Ric Flair did forever. One of the great heel champions of all time. But th- that's kind of... You don't see that much anymore because guys are too busy doing their spots and getting their shit in than to actually build tell a story that can build angst in the match where they have to cheat. Because the babyface is that good, the heel champion has to cheat to retain his or her championship. And uh, that that could be that whole process probably needs a little bit of refining in all the companies but the but Kitty was there man he was a uh, he was a step away from from living in the promised land
0: on the July 11th raw Kennedy's drafted from uh, Smackdown to Raw and on the August 20th raw Carlito would host an interview segment of uh, Carlito's cabana And during the segment, Carlito challenges his special guest, Umaga, for his intercontinental title at SummerSlam. And Kennedy is also demanding a shot at the title. The Raw GM, William Regal, would then schedule a match between Kennedy and Carlito, where the winner would get the opportunity to face off against Umaga at SummerSlam for the IC. After the match ends in a draw, Regal books a triple threat at SummerSlam. Ultimately, Umaga won that match at SummerSlam when he pinned Kennedy on September 10th. Uh, that edition of raw, Mr. McMahon would reveal that Kennedy had in storyline been suspended for impersonating a McMahon. And, uh, this angle was written because Kennedy was being named as one of the 11 wrestlers implicated in a steroid scandal and therefore was suspended for 30 days in accordance with WWE's wellness policy. And Kenneth said that he did take steroids to help him get to WWE. And after the wellness policy. He was led to believe that as long as you had a doctor's note, you'd be able to take things, but that wasn't the case here. What's your memories of his suspension and how bad did this sort of hurt his stock internally in the office?
1: Well, it obviously didn't do him any favors because reliability is the number one trait that any of us look for in talent. at least we should, that was always my number one priority. What do you look for in talent when you're scouting them or signing them? Well, I want to get to know them better. And I want to make sure that they're reliable. Because I can't count on you, Conrad, to come to work on time and do what you're asked to do to the best of your ability. Then what good are you to the company? You're not. You're only good for you and your own your own personal agenda. So uh, uh, he violated he violated the policy. It to me it was an open and shut case. I mean, he he was I guess it was proven, or they had uh, had proof that he was ordering steroids, and he wasn't by himself. So, uh, you know, that was, that's one of the times where I was glad that I wasn't in that same, uh, uh, EVP chair talent relations. You got 11 guys that are, you know, it's like spitting in the face of the company and the boys are always going to, or the boys are always going to, uh, say that they were in the right. Well, I had a doctor's note, you know, bullshit. Come on. Uh, you know, it's just silly. It's weak. It's a weak excuse, you know, better, don't do it. And, and I said this, I said this to a lot of kids, a lot of our AEW kids. How do you get to be great? And how do you get here and there? There's a lot of answers, right answers to that question. But the one answer that is always consistent Conrad is do not give your company that you're working for any reason to not want to do business with you. And when you start doing things like this. Uh, it gives company starts getting a little unsettled. Well, wait a minute. We're, maybe we're just starting to get to know this guy. Can we really depend on him? We thought we could, are we right? Or are we wrong? So big mistake, put you on a, on a bad list. Uh, and it's self-inflicted. Nobody made you or encouraged you to order steroids. Nobody. Now I said it before the show and I got some, he, I got a little bit of a pushback on it. I believe that, steroid or use is as good for healing and uh, as anything that you can do. And so I'm one that has a little bit more liberal frame of uh, point of view that under the right circumstances, under a medical care, that the steroid use is not a killer. Now somebody that has, if you're an antibiotic steroid abuser and you just, you never get off, you stay on a all, all long time, you're not cycling it. There's a way to do the steroid thing that is not going uh, to less a detriment to your health. And I know a lot of people listening are going to disagree with me, and that's cool because I'm not one of the guys on Twitter that get pissed off when you don't agree with my uh, my theories. I just think that we're in a position now where the medicine is advanced, doctor care is imperative. There's a lot of clinics. Uh, you know, I, I go to a clinic about every 8 weeks and get a steroid, uh, get a uh, a testosterone implant in my rosy red ass cheek. And, 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 that, and I guess in, in a sense, in a, in a drug monitor program, that might be illegal, but I don't understand why it would be. I mean, you know, it just makes you feel better. It gives you more strength, more awareness, sleep better, eat better. Uh, remember things better. It replaces what your body doesn't make anymore. So, uh, it, it helps me keep my motor running and, uh, my God, with the testosterone implant and the damn blue chew, I'm a dangerous weapon. So I got really a dangerous weapon, but that's the deal, man. He just, he made a mistake and, uh, it was just, but here's the thing. They never lost confidence in him on that one. He, he kind of stayed in the good, in the good graces Conrad, because when he came back, he didn't come back in some, uh, ham and egger,
0: right? He's coming back on October 1st on raw and it's going to face John Cena in the main event. And this is where the story starts to get a little more interesting because it's been written that during this time Ken has a lot of heat with John Cena. And uh Ken says he was once at a press conference of some sort and he mentioned Cena's name and the crowd booed him out of the building. So he decided to have fun with it. And he'd say Cena and they'd boo and he'd say Kennedy and they'd cheer. And he says, I wasn't doing this to take shots at Cena, I was just playing a heel. Do you remember this piece of business in particular and it perhaps ruffling the feathers of John Cena?
1: Well, that's vague. I vaguely remember it, but yeah, I did ruffle uh, Cena's feathers. Cena took it personally and thought, okay, enough's enough, uh, to encourage the audience by your uh, rhetoric to boo the, uh, appointed number one baby face in the company is not wise. So he was just being a heel, being his excuse is a weak ass excuse. That's my take on that deal. You don't do anything to, uh, chip away right. at the image or, or, the standing of a John Cena in this case, or anyone else in that top babyface role. You just don't do it. It's counterproductive. It's not being cute. It's not being funny. It's not just being a heel.
0: They had a match and Cena gives him a hip toss. And somehow during that, he tears his pack and he winds up blaming Ken for it. And Ken takes the blame backstage over it. I'm curious. Do you remember the injury and was it fair? I mean, how does a guy tearing his pack when the other guy's taking the move by jumping and flipping really, I don't know. Is this a fair criticism?
1: That's questionable. I don't know that. Uh, doesn't seem like it. But I wouldn't. I didn't. I can't recall. If I saw the move again, could be just dis- different positioning. You know, uh, the old he, he yeed when I thought he was going to haw, Old country saying. Uh, could have been something like that. But it, it seems to be a little bit over uh, overstated that you got you that you're blaming a guy for a basic hip hip toss, uh, and when he tore his pec. You know, John was heavily muscled. Those guys that have the big, thick muscles. Remember that no matter how big your, your biceps and triceps are, for example, the tendon holding, holding them all together is that's, those are all the same size. You can take, uh, enhancement substances that make the muscle grow, but it doesn't do a damn thing to strengthen the tendon or make the tendon grow. It don't work that way. That's what you're born with. So that could have been, that could have been part of the situation, but but Cena was the guy, and Kennedy found himself once again in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Ken says nothing was ever said directly to him about it, but he heard from people in the back that he knew he took heat for it. Did you ever hear that there was? I mean, in this era, do you remember hearing there was heat with Anderson and Cena at all?
1: It, it, well, heat on on uh, Anderson Kennedy, yeah. That you know the old it, it, the, it got worse and worse as far as his. uh, his situation as time went on. So all of a sudden he becomes careless. Mm. He becomes, you know, he's not safe. And I, I just never quite got that, uh, 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 feeling from watching him work. So yeah, he had some steam on him because look, Cena was, Cena was selling tickets. Right. And now the guy that's selling tickets can't work. The groceries are going to come down. The ticket sales are going to lessen. And therefore everybody's money on Cena's card was going to make less. So it's, it's, it's like, it's no different than when Austin got hurt. Thank God we had Dwayne Johnson. Cause we didn't hardly miss a beat. If we did it all, everybody still kept making money. So nobody got angry at Owen Hart because of the miscalculation on the power driver at SummerSlam. Uh, they just didn't, it was just a freak accident that happened. But they would have been more reaction if the checks had been had the amount of checks had gone down because Steve wasn't on the card. Again, thank God we had the rock. So that's kind of the deal here is that uh, over time the the heat for Kennedy was probably going to be uh, not going to go away right away, quite frankly. As long as Cena was on the bench, there's always going to be that that cloud over Kennedy that is this guy this not safe, or what?
0: At the No mercy pay-per-view in October, Kennedy's going to take part of a six man tag team match along the, uh, then world champs, uh, Lance Cade and Trevor Murdoch, they're going to defeat the then intercontinental champion, Jeff Hardy and Paul London and Brian Kendrick for several weeks. Kennedy would then begin to feud with Jeff Hardy where they wrestled in singles matches and numerous tag matches. Most of which Jeff Hardy always won at the cyber Sunday pay-per-view. Uh, Hardy and Kennedy are two of the eligible wrestlers that could earn a WWE championship match that evening, pending the fans voting. Of course, neither man gets that opportunity. Shawn Michaels does Kennedy winds up defeating Hardy in a scheduled match made by William Regal. And now he's working with Shawn Michaels, uh, the night after survivor series. And Kennedy claims it was time for Michaels to move on and let the younger wrestlers climb the ladder to success. This of course, in the promos. And at the Armageddon pay-per-view, Michaels would defeat Kennedy after Sweet Chin Music. And then on New Year's Eve, uh on that episode of Raw, Kennedy and Michaels had a rematch where Kennedy pinned Sean with his new finishing move, the Mike Check. In subsequent matches, they strayed wins over each other. But I gotta tell you, even though it feels like maybe there was some heat after the Cena situation, they're definitely trying. Jeff Hardy was as hot as any performer in the business here. And to have a singles feud with him. And then with Shawn Michaels, it feels like Vince is still, he's still behind Kennedy here, or you wouldn't be in this spot. Right?
1: Absolutely. Again, another opportunity. He got a reprieve and another reprieve. He got a lot of reprieves here. He never walked the green mile. Uh, well he did at the end, but nonetheless, he kept Kennedy was kept in the awareness and the psyche of the boss and Vince was hell bent on seeing this thing through because he knew there was something there with Mr. Kennedy,
0: uh, next up Ken does a movie, uh, the WWE movie behind enemy lines. And Ken would say that Mark Rano called him one day and said, I'm sending you a script for this movie. We'd like for you to read for it. Ken says there's like 15 or 20 other guys ready to read for that part. They do all of this in a hotel room in New York. Ken winds up getting the part, which was realizing a dream for him. When he was a kid, he was in plays and he'd get cameras and, you know, practice his craft in front of him. He wanted to be an actor once upon a time. And he even tried his hand in college for a semester, all because he loved the idea of making movies. Uh, When Kennedy returns on the April 28th, raw, he's confronted and brawls with the general manager and newly crowned King of the ring, William Regal turning face in the process. And Ken has always said that his plan was for him to have a face turn when He got called up. And I think that's logical. A lot of times, some of the best faces start as heels. Uh, which did you prefer the, uh, the good guy version or the bad guy version of Mr. Kennedy,
1: the villain version. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that he was, he's custom made for it. Body type again. Uh, he's got to beat you sometimes with un, uh, scrupulous means. And then at some point in time, he'll get attitudinal. Uh, he'll, the people will start getting comfortable with his uh, shortcuts by any means necessary philosophy, and then you'd make him a baby face, but a long run. And to me, a long run to, to turn like that is that you got to be in that, the, the former role, at least a year and, and preferably longer than that. And and now because, uh, those that write TV in a lot of places, uh, have no patience, I wonder sometimes you watch some of these matches. If they really are a fan of the business any longer, I don't know that, and it troubles me quite frankly. So, but I think he's he was better as a heel, and then after a long tenure, uh, and, and and while gaining success, he needed to he needed to be the the WWE champion. He needed to have success as a villain, and then then that would make his heel turn even that much more effective because the audience would remember, hey, this guy's a former champion, you know, and and he's always been entertaining. But I I'm kind of digging this guy now. And it's just a matter of how you change dancing partners with, but he's better as a heel first, good run, then baby face. I thought it was a little premature. On
0: the May eighteenth raw, Kennedy would defeat Regal and a loser leaves or loser gets fired match. Uh, let's fast forward. June twenty third on two thousand eight. This is the draft episode. Ken gets drafted to roll. Oh, I
1: re- I remember. <laughs>
0: I remember shortly after he's drafted to raw during a match with Shelton Benjamin, Shelton takes the turnbuckle pad off so it's an exposed turnbuckle now and they worked that into the match where Shelton would hit him uh into the buckle and then he would uh turn into Shelton's finish for the pin. After the match, Finlay told him he didn't think Shelton should have hit him with the finish after dropping him on the exposed turnbuckle. He felt like it was overkill. The next night, they worked the same match again with Shelton dropping him on the buckle and then Shelton grabbed him to take him down, but Ken's arm got caught between as they went down and it popped his shoulder right out of socket and dislocated it in the back. The doctor tries to put it back in place, but they wind up telling Ken, they're going to have to take him to the hospital and sedate him to do it. So Ken is in so much pain that he couldn't wait. Just do it now. And he said they had to get three guys to do it, to hold him down. And that's what they did. And they had one guy hold Ken down by his waist, another, hold him down by his arm. then they lock the arm and start pulling on it to try to get back into place and it finally slides back into a socket and ken said that his pain went from a 10 to a 1 almost instantly do you remember this instance and uh this seems like a scene from lethal weapon with the mel gibson character with all these guys trying to put the shoulder back into the place
1: vaguely remember it, conrad uh but hey look the guy wanted it so badly he didn't want to go to the hospital he didn't want to he he knew that Somewhere somebody's keeping a list of these uh interruptions in, in your in your schedule. And he he's rapidly beginning an, uh, by some the uh reputation of being injury prone. And that's sure as hell not flattering for any wrestler. Because again, you know, we can't depend on this guy, we can't rely on this guy because unfortunately he's had bad luck, wrong place, wrong time, uh and he's getting injured too much. So I I can understand why he did that. It's very damn uh, courageous. And, uh, I'm not so sure I would just not take him the the ride to the hospital and uh, got medicated, then do what the hell you need to do. But, uh, I, I admire what he did and it just shows you how bad he wanted it.
0: Do you think that whole rap on a guy being, uh, injury prone, does that come, does that come down the pike from Vince McMahon? Is that something that over the years, you know, he's had to say, you know, listen, I know we all like so-and-so, but he's too damn injury prone. We can't count on him. We've got to, uh, we've got to, we got to go with someone else because he won't be reliable. We can't go around marketing these matches and these house shows and then not be able to deliver because he's got this injury or that injury.
1: Well, it, it, uh, it will eventually trickle down from Vince, obviously. But you know, when we look at, uh, we had medical reports. Uh, every week there was a medical report out that told you who was hurt, how long they had been hurt and when their projected return date was. And when you see somebody's name on that, uh, injury report week after week or more, much more often than one would uh, like, it starts to resonate. Uh, and, uh, I think that's what happened there. You know, uh, uh Mr. Kennedy was on that injured list. And look, we've already talked about how many injuries are already right. in this show, right? So, yeah, it's going to be – and Vince is going to notice it. Uh, he may not be aware of how much we're paying Kennedy and how he's not earning his money because he's having to sit home and heal an injury. Uh, but um, the, the issue is, is that from a creative standpoint, when Vince has all these plans and he wanted to start them all yesterday – but he can't, it becomes to Vince very frustrating. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here is that it started to get a little frustrating because seemingly we could not keep, uh, Mr. Kennedy healthy, and he, but he was getting injured in the, with some of the most basic things. So, uh, was it was a genetic, was it a DNA thing? Uh, you know, what, what, do we hire damaged goods? I don't know, but you're starting to wonder he wasn't doing all the flips and flops. that you see a lot of guys do now all the acrobatics and the flying will end the material. He was doing basic things and, uh, or getting involved in basic things. The hip lock to Cena, the thing here with Shelton, it's just, you know, it's just basic stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, it uh, it's, it's going to take a toll on you because you can't be dependent upon to follow through with the creative that is being planned for you. And when you take a key element out, like Kennedy out of a program, or an angle and you got to replace him, you essentially got to start over. Uh, it just, it's not, it's not, it's not a thing like you passed the, you know, he's going to pass the torch to somebody else that the bill, the, the deal was, is him, he's the guy that we wanted in this match type thing and he couldn't, he couldn't perform. So yeah, it, it was, a, it is an issue that, that he, he had to get away from. He had to stay healthy for a while and be productive.
0: Bob Holly has said that, uh, he blames Ken for getting him fired, which I guess happened in uh, January of oh nine. Uh, Ken denies that and said he had nothing to do with Bob Holly getting fired. And Ken said he tried to protect Bob and keep the incident under wraps and keep it between the two of them only. And, uh, Ken said, Bob apologized to him and that was good enough for him. But people who saw what happened start talking and Ken says, someone wrapped tape around Bob's bag and wrote the word thief on it. And, uh, Ken said, after Bob saw it, he went around the locker room, making a big deal out of it. And Ken said he didn't do it because as far as he was concerned, he and Bob had talked about their incident and it was over with, uh, however, Bob made a big deal out of this rib with his bag and management heard about it. And when Johnny looked into it, Bob is fired. What do you remember happening with all this? The rumor at the time is that unfortunately it involved uh, pain pills or something of that nature.
1: Well, I don't remember all the details. Uh, I think that you can look back at that incident, and you know, I never had any issues with Bob Holly. Uh, you know, he was was he, was he challenge, a challenge to manage at times? Yeah, because he, he's very intense. He had a very competitive nature, and he had a short fuse. So what? It's called communication. Understand where you are with this talent, and and be able to communicate as to where they can process it and react appropriately to it. Communication is the key. I foresee that because Bob was not a top guy at that time, maybe Lauren, Ice is spending more of his time with the top guys. Uh, but you know, you can't have the top guys without these other guys. It don't work that way. Uh so uh I, I just think that it was probably much to do about nothing. I don't know about the pain pill thing. I don't remember it. Could have been. Could have been. Uh, wrestlers taking pain pills isn't new. Uh, they create reasons to take things that uh, addle their senses, or to, you know, to desynthesize them uh, for travel, and a lot of the psychological. Quite frankly, Conrad, pain pills are taken to sleep. They're taken to have a cocktail or two to to drown your sorrows, as it were. You're not home with your wife. You're not home with your kids. Your girlfriend's not seeing you as much as she used to. Uh, You're not making the money you think you should make. You're over obligated on your credit cards, whatever. It's a, it's an escape that cowards use to do much more than to address and manage their pain. So that's the pain field thing is not new. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't know the details behind it. Uh, I always liked Bob and him and Kennedy having an issue, uh, was just kind of off my radar at that time. I just wasn't, uh. I wasn't, I wasn't up on it. Quite frankly.
0: Uh, Bob wrote in his book, it was mid 2008. We're down in a show in Bakersville, California, and I needed some pain meds because my neck was hurting and I needed yet another elbow surgery. So I asked him if he had anything and he said, sure. And gave me some meds. Then he said, if I needed any more later, I should just go in his bag and get them. That's normal. I can't tell you the number of times Kim came to me and said, have you got anything? And I told him, help yourself. Everybody in the locker room helps each other. It's an unwritten rule. The office knows it happens, but they turn a blind eye, but they know we need it sometimes. Later that day in California, I needed some more meds. I finished doing my pre tape and went in the locker room, and there were probably 15 people in there. I grabbed another few pills from Ken's bag, and he came in with Umaga moments later, so I told him I'd taken four pills and would replace them when I had my next prescription filled. He said that was fine and went about getting some pills for Umaga. I thought that was the end of it, but a week or so later, a rumor starts floating around that I'd gone into Ken's bag without permission. I called him at home to ask what was up, and he assured me everything was fine. The next time I saw him at TV, I talked to him about this rumor again, and he said he didn't know anything about how it started. In the end, I got a call from Johnny Laurinaitis asking me what was going on. I told him exactly what had happened, and he said that's not what he'd heard. And he says, I found out afterwards after talking with Cena and Michaels, the rumor had started when Umaga had told people I'd gone into Ken's bag to get pills. Ken never told Umaga he had said I could, and when the rumor started spreading, Ken could have stopped it by saying, I told Bob it was okay, but he didn't. He'd been lying to me the whole time, claiming he didn't know what was going on and then not admitting that he hadn't squashed the rumor. It was self-preservation for Ken. Word had spread that I'd taken stuff from his bag, and when the rumor reached management, Ken could have gotten in trouble, so he stooged me out. You don't stooge the boys out. You always try to help each other. Everybody knows this. Maybe Ken didn't get the memo. All he needed to say was that it had been a misunderstanding, and he would have gotten a talking to, and that would have been it. But I guess Ken wanted to play the victim, but if I was going to steal from him, why the hell would I go in his bag in plain sight in the locker room? Ken really kicked me when I, when I was down and I told him a lot of things that were going on with me, with my divorce and everything, I needed him to be a friend. And instead his actions have had serious implications for my career. So there you go. There's uh, that's the, the long and the short of it, but 15 year career coming to an end here over a misunderstanding over pain pills, just less than ideal for everyone involved.
1: Yeah. It's sad, sad, quite frankly, as he said, she said, uh, the rude, the common denominator is pain pills. Uh, you you know, and, and guys are, all those guys are sharing the pain pills in that, in that time I'm again of the belief they're not taking them solely for pain management. They're taking them recreationally, uh, because it gives them the little buzz. They think they, they need it. It, it, does squo- squashes and deadens some of their senses. So uh, it's just, it's not, it's fucking sad. Uh, and the last guy in the world you'd want to cross is Bob Holly. Cause he will whip your ass. <laughs> and I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know how, <clears throat> Pardon me. I don't know how tough, uh, Mr. Kennedy was or is. I'm sure he's can handle himself, but Bob Holly's a different kind of beast. It's almost, he's the kind of guy that you got to goddamn maim or kill to, to get him to stop. So, but it's just silly over pain pills, all this shit over pain pills and a lack of communication. It just, just it makes you shake your head. Like, Really? Is this where we are? Really? God
0: almighty, the April 15th, Oh nine episode of raw Kennedy returns. He's the first pick of the Oh nine supplemental draft on May 7th. He returns to in-ring action and Florida championship wrestling WWE's developmental territory to gain some ring time before returning to raw. And this takes us to the now infamous 10 man tag, May 25th, 2009. Uh, this is an episode of raw, which will wind up being Ken's very last match in the company. Going into the 10-man tag, Ken said that for some reason he just had a bad feeling all day, but he didn't know why. And this is the match when Ken hit Randy with a back suplex and supposedly Randy landed wrong on his head and neck. And when the match is over, Randy came to the back, selling his neck, and gave Ken a lecture on safety in the ring. Ken didn't realize that he had dropped Randy on his head and apologized to him. And he said that he and Randy rode together for about a year and were really good friends. Their wives would get together and get their hair and nails done together. So they were all very good friends before this happened. But after the injury in the back, Randy got his head and shoulders iced and Ken sat in Randy's private dressing room with him and kept apologizing for what happened. And then Randy started apologizing to Ken saying it's no big deal. And he had overreacted about it. And he told Ken that it was water under the bridge as far as he was concerned. So Ken thought everything was okay and made a joke about something. And Randy said something like, see, I don't think this is funny. I don't think you'd think this, you take this seriously enough and things of that nature. So Ken goes home, watches the match and said, when you watch the match, when the incident happened from Randy's shoulders to his ass, Ken said he landed perfectly flat. He couldn't have landed any flatter on the mat and that Randy's neck never came in contact with the mat, but not long after this, Ken is at home and Johnny calls him and said, he's got bad news. They're going to have to let him go. And Ken said, okay, any reason why? And Johnny said they were unhappy with how things went on Monday, talking about the Randy Orton incident. And they're not going to go with the Ken Kennedy character anymore. And Ken said he was shocked and felt a little betrayed, but he also felt relief because this last year leading up to this, he was really struggling. Uh, He was on, when he was on SmackDown, he said, no one complained about him being unsafe. He'd worked with the undertaker for nine months straight and Taker even let Ken pile drive him. And Ken said at that point, Taker had only let two guys pile drop him, the other being Shawn Michaels. But when he got to Raw, all of a sudden Ken was looked at as being suddenly unsafe and a hazard to work with, and it got to a point where when he went out for a match, he'd be nervous because he didn't want to piss Vince off when he came back through the curtain, and Vince would say things to him like, "That was the shits. Why would you do this? Why would you say that?" Etc. And Ken said at that point he never got any th- positive feedback from Vince whatsoever.
1: Yeah, welcome to reality, kid, because that's how it works. Everybody in that company then and now has an expiration date. It may be transparent. You may have to look for it, but bet your sweet ass. There's nobody getting a check from WWE that does not have an expiration date and to be fair and not to throw WWE under the bus. It's really that way everywhere. Everybody's got an expiration date. And Vince had, had had discovered, for whatever reasons, was it the injury snafus? Was it being perceived as careless? You know, this is like Taz worked with uh, Kurt Angle in the Garden on Taz's debut. And Angle was undefeated, and Taz did some throws, some Greco-Roman throws, like a belly-to-belly release, c flex type thing. Those tight deals where they were released. And, uh, Vince felt that was extremely, extremely unsafe. Now, I don't know that Kurt angle ever said, uttered one word regarding that because knowing Kurt, he did not perceive it to be unsafe, but because the boys would gather around Vince to get their face time and to become the superior sycophants that many of them became, uh, he, he, he listened and and that's a good thing for the boss to listen to the talent, but you kind of got to be picky what you listen to. So I think that, that bit Taz in the ass. And I think this is this thing with Randy. Cause Randy was young and hot, going to be a big star has become a big star. He's arguably the best heel in WWE right now. Uh, and just an amazing talent. So it was like, you know, we can't have guys like Kennedy here that don't have the respect quote unquote for t- top stars like Randy Orton. Uh, and so that's how it was perceived. So. He was positioned with a painted with a very negative brush after that situation, and somewhere along the way, you know, somebody said, "Hey, look, hey, he's been, he's had this injury, he's had that injury, he's had this surgery, he's had that surgery," and he just said, the "Hell with it." So then that's how it works. That quick, one week, you're one in one month, whatever, you are looked at as a future WWE champion. The next week, you're out the door. And yes, it happens that quickly and that suddenly, and it's very abrupt. And, uh, I, there's just nothing you can do about it. That's the way the, that's the way they operate.
0: Ken said during this time, he'd have agents and some of the other top guys scratching their heads saying to him, they don't understand what's going on and why this is happening to Ken and Ken thought he'd go straight to the horse's mouth, so to speak. And he goes into Vince's office many times and asks, Hey, am I doing something wrong? And Vince would say things like, no, don't read too much into how I reacted. I just fly off the handle sometimes, but I have faith in you. You're going to be someone we can build this company around someday. But of course those weren't the messages from Vince, uh, that Ken was getting after his matches. Do you think there's anything that, that Ken could have done differently here towards the end? I mean, it does feel like when, when Cena says, Hey, he hurt me. And Randy Orton says, Hey, he hurt me. That's probably all there is to it. In hindsight, you were there for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Could Ken have done anything differently?
1: Uh, have better luck, had not hurt anybody. And he, and he, he hurt the wrong guys, key players, big time players, hall of fame guys, uh, main event guys who are selling tickets and, and merchandise. He could have had better luck. Uh, I don't know how vocal he was in the back and who he confided in. But uh, one of the worst things that one can do is to think that you have the trust and a relationship in the locker room that you can say virtually anything to that designated confidant. That's pure-ass ignorance. Uh, If you're – you know, Danny Hodge, my hero, uh, the great uh, two-time Olympian, NWA uh, junior heavyweight champion, my boyhood hero, blah, 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 told me – Call me Tiger. Hey, Tiger, when you get out of the business, if you got five friends from wrestling, you're a lucky man. He's a little gentle voice for the meanest, nastiest bastard I ever knew. Uh, and uh, he's right. So don't assume you can trust anybody. That's why Austin's DTA wasn't a character issue that he, he, he did for a T-shirt sales. It DTA, I mean, don't trust anybody was exactly his philosophy because Steve had confided in people and got his, and got burned. And they, there's hardly anybody in the business Conrad that can, that won't say the same story. So, uh, if Kennedy was spouting off in the back or, you know, whatever, I don't know that, but he's a very outspoken guy. He's very, you know, he's a gregarious fellow. It may have been that, but, uh, I don't know what he could have done. It's just, it was a cumulative effect of things on the pay on the injury page of him getting hurt and the injury page of him hurting others or others getting hurt in matches that Ken was involved in. It's just a, he had, there was too much cumulative evidence, so to speak, that was not going to, he was, he was, he could not be exonerated at that point in time in McMahon's eyes and that's all it takes.
0: It's a shame because he had such good relationships with other guys, you know, like the undertaker and ultimately, uh, nobody can help save his job here. And after WWE, he does some indie shots. Of course, he winds up going to TNA in 2010. He wins the world title from Jeff Hardy. There loses it back to him in a ladder match. He would win it again by beating sting, but lose it back to sting. And, uh, fast forward to March of 2016. He's let go from TNA think there was a a drug test issue there too i'm not sure but then in september of 2019 just a a few months ago he uh, lands on nwa power on youtube and that's where he's still at working with the nwa and uh he's opened up a wrestling school i guess four years ago with davari and he's still in the business um but it, it it never really reached the heights that most assumed it would. When he starts working with Batista and undertaker, it wins the money in the bank ladder match at WrestleMania. It's almost one of those. And you get asked this question a lot. I mean, when we've done live shows together because you ran talent relations for so long, one of the consistent questions you get a lot is, Hey, who had the most upside that, you know, never really made it, who was, who wound up being a disappointment. And I don't know that it's necessarily all Ken's fault, but when you start with that trajectory and you wind up where. You know, he's just let go sort of unceremoniously that has to be classified as a, as a disappointment and one of those great, what ifs, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, a lot of raw talent, good natural instincts, uh, exceptional aptitude for the business, but he found himself, uh, the poor bastard at the wrong place at the wrong time. Too many times, uh, big disappointment. And, and 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 understand what that means folks it doesn't mean that you know he he was the shits and he was overrated and he had no skills he, he did he did but he had really bad misfortune he trusted the wrong people he 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 should have gone and had a more of a relationship with vince after i left and it sounds very self-serving and i apologize for such but you know i don't know that how much Lauren has spent? How much time he spent with him? He may have spent a lot of time that I'm not aware of. Uh, I, I had been moved to SmackDown by then, after that draft that we've discussed, and uh, so I wasn't around Kennedy all the time. But I always felt he was a glib guy, smart guy, and that's why I think, as far as he and Davari's wrestling school, I can't imagine it not being a good school, because both guys have uh, had interesting journeys to get to where they are today. They understand success and they understand failure. They understand what it takes and what you should do to make sure that you don't give any company, any reason to not want to do business with you. He just said he was just wrought with some bad luck and, and I hope he's doing well now hope he's healthy, but, uh, the injuries didn't do him any favors. His body, his body for did not forgive him. So I, I'm, uh, am sorry that that didn't work out better for him. Uh, because I did think he had a huge upside. And if that upside can be converted into teaching or like his work on NWA, uh, that's great. Resurrect yourself, man, resurrect yourself and end your run with something really, really good. Perform- and that's that, why you got in the business. why did you get in the business? I wanted to perform. Well, now you can perform as a coach, as a teacher or whatever he's doing in NWA. So, uh, hopefully this story will have a happy ending. But it was one of the bigger disappointments that we've had because, uh, Ken Anderson had great skills and that did not get realized. And that's something you can't go back and recapture Conrad. You know, we both like to say there's a fountain of youth and we all going to get it younger. We aren't, we aren't folks enjoy today. You know, all we can do about yesterday is to study it. We, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So what do you got left today? And today, if those guys are training and they got a, their school going, uh, I, I suggest anybody that wants to be trained and especially in that Midwest area, uh, check them out, check them out and see, uh, visit, see what, see what they do that, that may, may, you may like both guys will have the set to be excellent coaches. And uh, I wish them nothing but the very best of luck on that project.
0: Check out their school. Uh, it's online, the academy, the academy pro wrestling.com is where you can find more out about their school. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of guys in and around the biz who, uh, co-sign what they're doing there. You know, Swaggle, Kevin Nash on down the line, the academy pro wrestling.com is where you can get more information. Uh, and if you want to follow Ken on Twitter, he is at Mr. Ken Anderson. That's at Mr. Ken Anderson. And, uh, I had fun with this episode this week, man. This was uh, fun to go back and revisit an era of the company. We haven't talked a lot about next week. We're playing the hits, man. We're going to watch an episode of raw, raw is war from March 13th, 2000. That's coming your way next week, March, the 12th, March 19th. We're going way back in time to clash of the champions. One you and Tony Schiavone on the call March 26th. We're getting into WrestleMania mode. We'll revisit WrestleMania nine. April 2nd, we'll keep it going with WrestleMania 2000 on April 9th. We'll talk clash of the Champions six. That's going down head to head with the WrestleMania on top of that card. It's Ric Flair and Ricky, the dragon steamboat for the world championship in new Orleans on April 16th it's Vicky Guerrero on April 23rd, John Cena, that episode might take three days. And then on <laughs> April 30th, backlash 2000, lots of good stuff coming your way here on grill and Jr. Wouldn't you agree, Jim?
1: Yeah. Great moments. Uh, v- uh, re-visualizing worthy. Uh, I can think of all, all those titles you m- just mentioned. I'll have a flash of, of a piece of video in my head, a, m- a memory, uh, a lot of very viable content, very viable times. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about in these shows, you notice, we talk about how things could have been, how they could have gone another idea. What if we did this, uh, this is what that meant that night. This led to this. It's all, it's just continuing to connect the dots and Conrad and his team do a great job, I think, of putting these shows, uh, uh selecting the shows that we do, uh, do a great job of, the, of getting the right material. I have to be honest with you. When Conrad told me, as we mentioned er- earlier, that, uh, we're going to do a show on, uh, Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Anderson, I didn't have a lot of, I wasn't fired up about it. I thought we've had a hell of a good show. No, it was, was a, great uh, it, show we talked about a lot of guys, a lot of relationships. You see how kind of how the business works and how you you can just simply be a victim of bad luck. And I think by and large, uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy was a victim of bad luck. Yeah. yeah
0: and that's what we'll talk about uh, a lot here on the show is the bad luck, including the bad luck that poor may young has next week on the show. It's March 13th, 2000 continental airlines arena. It's a loaded show. The Hardy Boys working with Head Cheese. Mark Henry working with the Dudley Boys in a handicap match. Kurt Angle working with Chris Jericho and Taz. Uh, DX working with uh, Rikishi Fatu and Too Cool. We've got Kane working with the Big Boss Man. Dean Malenko working with S.A. Rios. The Acolyte's working with Edge and Christian. Benoit and Saturn taking on Test and Val Venus. Rock and Big Show as well in singles action. But the big thing that this show is remembered for. Bubba Ray Dudley, giving a bubble bomb to may young off the stage through a table, and we're going to do that watch along style. So don't watch it yet. Watch it with Jim. <laughs> He's going to have some fun commentary on that. And he'll have plenty of fun commentary in Rochester, New York on March 17th. Uh, our old pal, Tony Schiavone is going to be joining comedy at the Carlson. It's a super show and you can pick up tickets right now at supershowlive.com Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross comedy at the Carlson, March 17th. It's a late-night show, 9 p.m. You can do a meet-and-greet beforehand, and uh, this is going to be fun because this is St. Patrick's Day. So, man, the uh, the Moscow Mules, those are going to be flowing that night, are they not?
1: Yeah, green beer. I like green beer uh, as well. Uh, Tony and I will have fun. Uh, folks, for those of you that may not be keeping score at home, uh, March 17th, as Conrad mentioned, is a Tuesday night. The show is going to start at 9 o'clock. Tony and I will come there directly from our tv production meeting uh because the next night on the on Wednesday the 18th uh we're presenting for the first time AEW Dynamite in Rochester and like i said i've got i got a lot of uh a lot of memories about Rochester and the buffalo area and all that stuff you know ilio depaolo's restaurant his son dennis is a great guy and and i thought the world of mr depaolo he has a wonderful uh italian restaurant there in buffalo uh, everybody talks about eating when you go to Buffalo or the Buffalo area, you got to go to, you know, uh, have the, have the wings. And that's not a bad idea. Uh, but I, I can promise you if you ever go to Buffalo in that area and you got a chance to eat at Ilio DiPaolo's restaurant, I strongly suggest that you do. It's homemade Italian cooking and Mr. DiPaolo is such a wonderful guy, Conrad, his hands look literally look like catcher's mitts, a, a, a huge, his hands are as big as Andre's. Really? And oh God, he was a big Italian, raw bone, uh, double tough old son of a gun. Just loved him. And, uh, when I went to his restaurant the first time I was up there broadcasting a game, uh, I think it was on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, with the, uh, Falcons at the bills. And, uh, they, instead of me doing my stuff, I did my pregame game show in the booth. Then I went down the field to do the, the game and do color from the sideline. And it was a real good day to do that because it's only probably about 20 degrees spitting sleet. And, uh, I was never so miserable of doing a broadcast of any kind in of my life. Uh, I was that one, but I, it's certainly in my memory bank, but it was a uh, Mr. When I went to this restaurant, Mr. DePaulo saw me and entered, you know, he, he knew who I was and I knew who he was the big wrestler handshake, not a limp, but a real handshake. And, uh, he took the menus. So I don't even know what the menus had on it. He took the menus and went, let, let me order from the menu. We he brought food out and kept bringing food out. It's like going to his home and having a meal. Uh, I love those memories of our business. These are the kind of memories that make me happy and make me grateful that I got a chance to be in the pro wrestling business and then still in it. So in Rochester is also, we know I, I love gorilla monsoon. That's his hometown. Bob Morella was a great athlete at Ithaca college two, two or two, two, three sports, football, wrestling, and track. So it's a lot of memories for me, that part of the country. So it should make for really cool, uh, Q and A's and go, go and everybody can answer, ask their questions, uh, uh there in, in Rochester, anything you want to ask, uh, Tony and I will be happy to answer them and entertain you as best we can. But if you get a chance to go VIP, I believe you said, well, sure. You're going to say that Jer, cause the tickets are more expensive. They are. But the opportunity to to share your stories, to have your swag signed, to get a picture taken with Tony and I, that's all goes with it. And we love meeting the fans. So of course we're both still fans. Tony, thanks to Conrad has been reinvigorated as a wrestling fan. Uh, he's, he's, he's just doing a phenomenal job for us. He's having fun the business again. So we'll, we'll have a good time. The show'll be about two hours long, so we won't keep you out all night. But, uh, unless we are really rolling and you're buying the mules, so we might stay a little longer.
0: <laughs> don't miss it. Supershowlive.com is where you can pick up your tickets, March 17th, 9. PM. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Can't recommend it enough. Live super show. What happened when with Tony Schiavone grill and Jr with Jim Ross comedy at the Carlson Supershowlive.com is where you can pick up your tickets and don't forget to tune in next week. But before you do that, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review. Go find our YouTube channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and the notifications bell. So, you know, whenever new content pops up on YouTube and you don't want to miss all the great sauce and everything else at JR's I cannot recommend the book enough. Uh, it's going to come out at the end of this month. You don't want to miss it. It's the best wrestling book ever written. In my opinion, it's already number one on Amazon for a reason. Don't be left out. The wrestling world is going to be talking about it and you need your copy. And if you get it from jrsbbq.com, you get an autographed copy. So, why wouldn't you do that? Snag it while you still can and tune in next week and every week, right here on Westwood One, for grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and
0: on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20?
1: <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale.
0: <laughs> those weekend
1: golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search BLEAV on YouTube or wherever you listen.